You're listening to Path of Love with David Youngren. To learn more about us, visit pathoflovecenter.com. Today on Path of Love, we'll be speaking with David Youngren about stages of consciousness in his book, Awakening to I Am Love. I encourage you guys to pick up this book and follow along with the chapters in this podcast because it really gives you a good and a great insight on the thinking that David has and opens up your mind to new new thoughts. Let's start out. In the evening, we go to bed, close our eyes, blanket both our bodies and our mind and wait for our waking consciousness to fade. While we sleep, we are unaware of time, our body and our surroundings. We spend about one third of our lives in this state of limited mobility with minimal responses of our environment. Nothing in our biology changes at night, but we are not aware of our reality because we are asleep. In the same way, most humanity is asleep, unconscious of the true self, unaware of who we really are, the source of our existence, the purpose of life, and the divine love that is embedded in all of us. Let's talk with David. Hey, David, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, uh, Marcus. It's so uh, much fun to be with you again for this is our third podcast. Can you believe it? It is. And it's been a very, very good time for me. I enjoyed every bit of it so far and look forward to everything that's coming in the future. Well, thank you. It's I enjoy always talking with you and, and just sharing some of these thoughts with you. And I think uh, it's amazing how all of us intuitively feel that there is something about this. This is not just, you know, uh, thoughts and beliefs or mental constructs, but it really is so much more than that. It's just something that within us, we kind of recognize when we begin to hear some of these things, we begin to recognize because it's almost like it's our intuitive wisdom from deep within. So stages of consciousness is uh, chapter three in your book. Um, you start out with a story about uh, an, e an eagle. Can you elaborate on that a little well, bit? Well, you know, I told this story so many times and it, and it is an interesting story because it's it kind of, um, I don't know, I read it a number of years ago and I've had it to actually have written, used that story in at least two of my books, maybe even three, I can't remember. So I've used this story in a few of my books, <laughs> but it's about this uh, farmer who one day was out walking in the forest and he saw this young eagle that had fallen out of its nest. And so he felt sorry for the bird and he brought it home and he left it in the farmyard together with his chickens. And it didn't take long for this king of birds to regain strength and grow. But there he was confined to the pen. And because of that, it had adopted the behaviors and eating habits of the chickens. And so one day this environmentalist passed by the farm and he noticed this majestic bird in the yard and he asked the farmer what the eagle was doing among the chickens and of course the farmer said well you know he's just uh, he, you know he was once maybe an eagle but he's no longer an eagle because he's surrounded by chickens and that's all he knows how to do he eats like a chicken he clucks like a chicken and he walks like a chicken and therefore he must be a chicken and the environmentalist said well I think he's more a bird than a chicken. He is an eagle. And he said, that's his true identity. He just needs to wake up to what he really is. And in a way, that's the condition of humanity. 
we do not really understand who we are at the very core, our deepest and truer self at the very core. And this is the problem of humanity. Our unconsciousness is causing so much of the problems that you see in the world that causes greed, hatred, bigotry. I mentioned that in the book, homophobia, xenophobia, misogyny, racial intolerance, violence, and wars. All of those are just negative symptoms of being unconscious. We're like uh, sleeping beauties uh, that have been asleep, unconscious of our true self. So there's a lot of people who walk in, I will use the, the word zombie state like that, and who are not conscious or are unconscious to um, who they really are. And they allow um, other things in life to create that consciousness. Are, I mean, does every human start out that way? Or, or, or how does that, how do you get there? Because you wrote in there, basically you were talking about the human body and you said, what made them a living being was not their body itself. It was an inexplicable presence with that physical form. Yeah, within that physical form. So what you think about it, if you've ever been to a funeral, I'm sure oh yeah, I'm sure you've been to a funeral. Mm-hmm. Most of us have been to a funeral. Yeah. And so like I always struck by, I don't know if you feel the same way, but I'm always struck by when I go to a funeral, how there is his body when the casket is open, there is his body in there. You know this person, and you know this person maybe for years, and you've seen them. And, but when they're laying there in the casket, what do we say? Their spirit has parted from them. And what does that mean? They're no longer conscious. The body is there. You could even say that all the things that made up the mind is there. The, the, the brain cells are not, have not disappeared. The heart is there. Still not, it's no longer pumping. But what is it that is no longer there? Their spirit or consciousness. And Ultimately, and this is, I think, is what I'm talking about in the book, that your true self is consciousness. It's your spirit. Think about it this way. One of the examples that I like to use is this. If you look at your life, Marcus, think about it from the day you were born. I don't know how old you are, and I won't ask you that question. But you're younger than me, and that, that is a, that's a plus, I think. I don't know if it's a plus, actually. It doesn't make a difference. But anyhow, since you were born, you, your body has changed. You look nothing like you did 30 years ago. Probably. I don't know. I would imagine you look very little like you did 30. I don't know how many years. I won't mention in years. But, <laughs> but you, your body has changed. Think about when you were a little baby. Mm-hmm. Well, you are not the same as you were. And in fact, your thoughts are different. You don't have the same thoughts as you did when you were five years old. You, your thoughts, you have about 50 to 60,000 thoughts a day. They all fluctuate. They don't, they, they change. You have, your emotions change. Some days you're happy and sometimes you're sad and sometimes you're in between. You have all this uh, plethora of emotions None of that is the same. So what then is you? Your body is not the same. It has changed continually. And it continues to, maybe you will never have wrinkles, but maybe one day you will have wrinkles. <laughs> I notice you have a little bit less hair, but I don't know whether that's because it's shaved or not, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> regardless, regardless, the point is this, that we all change. But there is one thing that has remained constant. 
It's not your emotions. It's not your body. It's not the thoughts that you have. But what has remained constant is your sense of presence, awareness, consciousness, your ability to, to observe reality and perceive life. That is ultimately that has been there constantly. And that is the same for both you and I. If we will go outside, think about this. If you and I will go outside right now and looking at a tree together and think about for, the, if, if for, for just a few moments that you were not engaged with that tree f- with your mind. You were just observing. You didn't have any labels uh, that said this is a tree. You just looked at it. You observed it. You were just taking it in. You had there was no labels. There was nothing you knew about the tree. It was it. We would just stare at the same tree. Your consciousness is the same as my consciousness. We are no different. And there will be a sense of oneness right there because what we would observe is the same thing. Now, of course, your heart that has been conditioned over many, many years may interpret things differently. We may focus on different things because the way we interpret the world. But at the very core, if we could create enough of a gap between our thoughts and just be very present with the tree, what we would experience would be exactly the same thing. It would be consciousness. So in a way, what I'm suggesting is this consciousness is your very true essence. And that is your divine essence. It is the spirit that as, that, as we read in Genesis poetically, God breathed into the nostrils of man. He formed the body out of the ground. So the bodies are all different, but the very essence of who we are is we're spirit, we're consciousness, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And you, tr- you explained in the book about science and how they can't even explain certain things when it comes to life and matter and your your consciousness and um, therefore it stands as an unsolved mystery even for the greatest scientists and minds well you know it's it's interesting because there's a dis there is this scientific debate and and i've read a number of different scientific books in the last number of years because it really is very intriguing to me that one of the Questions, one of the biggest unresolved questions among scientists is, what is consciousness? So you have, on one corner, you have some people who believe that your biology creates your consciousness. But that makes no sense because, you know, science is coming to this understanding that the behavior of subatomic particles, and indeed all particles and, and objects, are linked to the presence of an observer to consciousness. This is so amazing. Think about this. We're all made up of like 300 billion or trillion cells. And all those are made up of trillion. Every cell is made up of trillion atoms. And all those trillion of atoms are made up of sub-atoms. And without a conscious observer, without a consciousness, they would not exist. So it goes to the question, what creates life? Is it the biology that creates life or reality that creates life? Or is it consciousness that creates reality? And so scientists are mainly coming to the conclusion now that it's consciousness that creates reality. That consciousness is your true essence. It's who you are. It's your divine essence. 
It is God within you, the very ability to be able to observe reality and experience life, to be self-aware, to be conscious of yourself, and then to be able to grow in consciousness so that your consciousness is not just limited to your own self, but to grow in consciousness where you begin to identify with all things as being you. So, for example, I've, I don't know if uh, you've done this or even listeners, you find yourself uh, at a campfire or at a bonfire or something along those lines. And then you are sitting in your chair and you're staring at the fire. And for some odd reason, you can stare at the fire and just be observe the fire, observe those types of things. But you everything fades away all of a sudden, like everything around you fades away. All the things fade away. And it's just, you're just there with no thoughts or no nothing. It's and you're, is that consciousness? Yes. It's such a great example, Marcus. It's exactly right. It's like, you're just aware. There's just a sense of awareness, right? You're just sitting there. You're just aware. And at that moment, no fear at that moment, no uh, labeling or judging, is this good or bad? No rotation with the person sitting next to you. You're just aware and you are free at that moment. It's just so incredible. And of course, and many people will say when they hear this, they say, oh, you know, I don't know what, what you're talking about. I'm coming from a Christian background. Well, I, I can show you this through the Bible. I can show you this in the Bible, that this is really the story that is many times has been hidden in the Bible because we have not awakened to who we are. You know, it says, Jesus said to Nicodemus, he said, unless a man becomes born again, he shall not enter into the kingdom of God. What is he saying? He's saying that the birth of consciousness, that pure innocence, that pure love, when you come into that place, when you sit by the fire and you're just aware, is your true essence. And that's the moment of pure love, joy, peace, and happiness. And, and all those incredible, what the Bible refers to as the fruit of the Spirit. And I know th there was something I was going to ask you later on, but since you hit on that point um, about being seen or being born, you stated something in the book to where you were talking about um, when the Jesus' followers went to the tomb and they couldn't identify that a body could uh, resurrect or they couldn't identify that uh, it was new life. Um, it said, remember, we are all once children. A child can, why is it that a child and being childlike, why is it that it's easier for a child to accept things and see things that adults can't see or accept? Uh, it's a great question because we have been conditioned. We've been conditioned to see the world a certain way and children have not been as conditioned yet. They don't have all this content. Content is your thoughts, accumulation of all your thoughts, all your beliefs, all the things that you've been taught, your traditions, what your parents taught you, what school taught you, what society taught you, what television taught you, all those different things. Those are conditioning when you're a child, you have very little of that. So then you're much more inclined to be able to see. Now, what I find interesting is, and, and I don't know if we want to get into that yet, if you, if, if, unless you may have some more questions, but the stages of consciousness. 
That's where I was going next. Oh, you, you go there. You ask the question <laughs> and I'll, I'll just be quiet. I was going to ask you, starting with stages of uh, human consciousness. I mean, you, you explained a few type of stages like primal human consciousness. Primal human consciousness is what? I did not necessarily come up with this myself because I've heard this from a number of different people over the years that have very smart, very intelligent people. But they have observed maybe up to seven or eight or even nine different stages of consciousness. And so I talk about four of them in my book because it's a little easier for, for most of us to comprehend. And it's think about it this way. We, at the very core, as I said, we are consciousness. We are spirit. We, we have this sense of aliveness. We have this sense of presence. We are self-aware. But then you have through stages in life that you go through in development. So the very first stage is egocentric. Now egocentric, what, that, what does that mean? Well, the egocentric means that, uh, which is the early stage of development, you basically cannot take the role of another person. You cannot see the world through somebody else's eyes. In a way you think that the world evolves around you. So children actually are very much like that. I, I remember talking to my neighbor's kid over here and we had an interesting conversation. He was telling me, he asked me one time and he was like five or six when he asked me, he said, he says, bad ghosts live and where do good ghosts live? And so he thought, so I asked him, what, what do you think? What do you think? I said to him and he said to me, well, I think that bad ghosts live underneath the ground and good <laughs> ghosts live above the ground. So then he looked at me and again, and he said, uh, who made the sun? I said, what do you think? He said to me, well, I think it was some kind of a, he thought for a moment and he thought, and he said, I think it was like a sunflower that exploded. <laughs> and then he asked me, he said, uh, where does God and Jesus live? So I asked him again, what do you think? So he said to me, I think they probably live up in the clouds. Now, the point that I'm making is this. He is unable to, he was unable to see the world in abstract ideas. He sees the world from his own perspective. And in a way, you know, they say that children think that the sun follows them rather than they don't understand this complex, you know, the earth basically is, is, uh, evolves around the sun and, you know, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. But they don't understand that. And that's essentially is egocentric. So, what happens in the egocentric stage is that you be, you believe more in in magic and and you know you believe in voodoo you believe in all these different things and you basically see the world from your own perspective you can see this in within christianity that both of you and i have been part of for for a very long time you can see that some people when they read the bible they always look for what's in it for me more mm -hmm. money healing how can I be seen? It's in other words, it's very much about ego driven. It's about my own significance. It's more, it, how is this gonna enhance me? How is this gonna be enhance my kind of life? And that is the first stage of consciousness. Is it something that, is it correct in saying when someone says, what can I do? What is it that I'm doing? What is it, how am I gonna fix this? How am I gonna take care of this? How am I going to uh, resolve this? Is it more along those lines? Like me, 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 me? 
Yeah. So think about it this way. And I always say this, that your truest and deepest self is your consciousness. That is pure, unfiltered, where there is pure love. What happens in life is that your heart, and I, I teach about this later on in the book, you have a mind, you have a heart, you have a soul, and you have a body, you, and you, you are spirit, right? Spirit is your consciousness. Your heart is your inner sense of self. Now, your heart is, your, heart is your emotions. And when I say emotions, we talked about this last time, is fear, everything that is rooted in fear. Now, love is not an emotion, even though that it shows up in many, in many of the same ways. But love is your true essence of your spirit. And when we have things happen in our lives, trauma, or we are told that we're not smart, when we're told we're not good enough, when we're told that we don't qualify, when we are made to feel like we're somewhat less, it blocks our heart from being aware of the essence of our true self. Then the very first stage of that is to control and to kind of protect yourself because protect. what you see is mm -hmm. separatedness. You see that you're separated from anybody else. You can't trust anybody else. You cannot trust that anybody will love you unconditionally. So you try to protect yourself. And then the more trauma, and, and I believe this, the more trauma a person has experienced, the more egocentric they are in their view. Now, most of us grow out of that stage but not everybody does. Some people remain they, egocentric next, for the rest of their life. <laughs> yeah, I I would agree with that. I mean, uh, you you see that in politics, you see that <laughs> yes. in religion, you see that in a lot of things, um, and then even they have signs of the next step with is with which is uh, ethnocentric, right? Ethnocentric, um, yes ethnocentric um, evolved from complete self-centeredness and tribal. You kind of grow up a bit when you come to a certain age and you begin to recognize, okay, I usually, and I heard someone say this and I thought it was good. If you think of egocentric, you think of me, it's me. The word for it is me. If you come to ethnocentric, it's we. And when I say we, it's our tribe, it's our family, it's our group, it's our religion, it's our faith, it's our church, it's our uh, political party, it is our nation, it is, it is the group that we're part of. And so that creates an us versus them. So what we're thinking is, well, we are the good people. So the ego then kind of has graduated a bit. I identify with my tribe. I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm a Jew. I'm a Muslim. I'm an American. I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat whatever it is that we identify with as being our core self is ethnocentricity. And that is also rooted in the ego. And so a lot of people are in this area, in this group, a lot of people in the world are in these two first groups. In fact, this, I heard a study somewhere that 60% of the population in the United States is within these two first categories, egocentric and ethnocentric. They see the world, from the perspective of either me or we, our group. And anybody who's not part of our group is the enemy, is evil, is wrong, cannot be trusted. So I'm gonna ask you a hard question from that. And when I see ethnocentric, I look at the word ethnic. And when I see you say um, tribal, or you say a part of a group, it also means a part of a race, I believe, because you have African-American, Black, you have 
Caucasian, white, you have Hispanic, you have Asian, you have all these, and you grow up in that type of environment. How do you get out of an ethnocentric uh, situation or mind frame when that's all you know in that space? Yeah, and I think this is a good question. Uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to tell you the, the the four different stages because you have to wake up to each stage. You basically have to, a normal development in a person goes through all the different stages. Okay. And so what happens is once you're, what happens is, is for example, in, an egocentric person is afraid of ethnocentricity. They don't like it. There's a fear of it. And an ethnocentric person has disdain for the egocentric. And then there is a next level, which, and this goes to race. We're going to, I'll talk about race in a moment here because this is, this is a great example. The next stage is world centric and world centric is when you now begin to understand, okay, well, uh, we're all the same. And the key word is everybody. So you go from me, we, everybody. So now you have kind of, you, you begin to understand, oh, there are people who are different than me and they should have the same rights and same privileges. And so then you begin to move past, you know, seeing things from a white person's uh, point of view. You begin to see, okay, well, they're all human beings. We all are the same. Now, a lot of times ethnocentric people will mentally agree to that being their worldview. That's how they see the world. But on the heart level, they don't see it that way. And that's why we have racism. So I met people who are very racist, but they will say, I'm not racist. Because mentally, they don't align themselves with that. But the heart, on the heart level, on the emotional fear-based level, they identify. And remember, the ego always seeks to stand out, to be better, to to enhance its sense of self. So on that level, it seeks to be better than someone else. And if I can push someone else down, it's not consciously thinking this way, but on the heart level, on the emotional level, if I can push someone else down, then I feel better about myself. But when you go up to the world-centric level, you kind of am more embraceable of other people from different religions and, and and you kind of also, one of the dangers of the world centric is that no, there's no longer any truth. Whatever's true for you is true for you. Whatever's true for me is true for me. And that creates all kinds of problems as well. But those are the three stages. And then we come to the last stage. But as you pointed out, what you, what you have in the United States, for example, we're talking about race, what you have is in... And I find this very interesting. I was thinking about it today, actually. What you have in 2016 at, in the election, you have the egocentric and ethnocentric was basically pushing back against the world-centric worldview, where we are everybody is, you know, we're all together. We are, you know. And so the egocentric and the ethnocentric won out because they create enough fear of the world-centric. You see what I'm saying? They create enough fear of the world-centric so that the people who are egocentric, their center of gravity is egocentric or, or ethnocentric, even though that they may mentally agree with all of the world-centric ideas, but the center of gravity the heart, at the heart level, they were still ethnocentric and egocentric. They push back against this world-centric culture. Now, in the last election, what we have is 
it was a pushback against egocentric. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? The world centric, they rallied together and they said, we're going to push back against this egocentric worldview perception. You see what I'm saying? And the ethnocentric worldview. So you see this in politics and you see this in religion, you see this in all forms of life. And I'm not here to glorify the world centric because the world centric has so many flaws. I'm here to talk about really the next stage and we can get into that later. But it, it, to me, this is very fascinating. It is very fascinating. And I, I see uh, your comparison in the egocentric and ethnocentric and then the pushback on the world centric. Um, does that mean that that's the first three stages? Do you believe that the Nets consciousness is going to be the Christ centric or do you feel that it can revert back to an ego or ethnocentric? Well, I think collectively it will take period, take a period of time. Collectively as a whole, it will take a period of time. And, and, and there are more than three or four different groups. So there are many different groups within the egocentric and ethnocentric and the world centric. And there's sometimes that people are in between the different stages, right? They're not quite sure what it is. So there are a lot of times it's in between stages as well. But what I would suggest to you is that the world is moving toward the Christ-centric and as a whole. Now, mm-hmm. and, and I would also suggest that once you have awakened to the Christ-centric consciousness, you cannot go back. You cannot see the world again from the world-centric or ethnocentric and the egocentric point of view. You may have moments of it. You may have moments when you step back into egocentric thinking again. But your center of gravity has shifted and you cannot go back. The same is true if you're world-centric. You cannot go back to ethnocentric. And what you will find today among a lot of churches and places of worship where you have millions of people who are leaving church every year, what you're saying, what people are saying is, is they have their their level of consciousness, especially among young people, their level of consciousness is now world-centric. And what they're seeing in church is not world-centric. What they're seeing is ethnocentric and even egocentric. And so for that particular reason, it's very, they can never go back to seeing the world the way it is, the way it was. The only way you will act for church, and I tell my friends who may be ministers, I say to them, if you want to see your church grow, you have to be able to grow yourself, Mm -hmm. grow into a different way of seeing the world, a different way of reading the Bible, a different way of seeing Jesus. And the Christ-centric, most of my Christian friends would say, well, I'm Christ-centric. No, most of them are ethnocentric. Most of them are ethnocentric, and some are even egocentric. There's a few world-centric, but very few of them. I think this is really, if you read the Bible from a, with a different lens, you begin to see that this is what essentially Jesus was communicating. But he was communicating to people who were very ethnocentric. But, but so he was leading them along the way toward an expanded consciousness where your heart is open, where you're free from the debris of your heart, all the emotional, uh, the fear, all of that 
the, the toxic emotions, when your heart is open, when you're just aware, pure awareness, and you begin to see as the Christ-centric, and we could get into that in a moment, but the Christ-centric uh, consciousness, where you begin to see everything as one, and the word here is one. So before we get into Christ-centric, you, I would like to go back and touch on how you said you can't go back to a world-centric or an ethnocentric or an egocentric. What happens when you see someone in your marriage or someone in your family or someone in your uh, life or workplace where you see them as egocentric, ethnocentric, or you see them starting to get better and you're thinking they just, they changed to be a better person or they've, you know, may have found a different consciousness. Uh, but then you go back and they revert back to their old ways. Is it just that they never did get out of that egocentric? And you said you can see them in different stages at different times. Once you truly are transformed, once your eyes are open, you cannot go back. Now, intellectually, you can see it. You can intellectually try to achieve a higher stage of consciousness because somehow or another you feel that could be good. But from the heart level, mm -hmm. from that level that where you're closest to your spirit, mental, your pure awareness, that once you step into a new way of seeing, you cannot go back. And what one of the problems, and, and, and I want to say this because when you get into Christ-centric consciousness, and I want to expand a little bit more, especially for my Christian friends, because I, I raised a lot of issues there. I'm sure that a lot of question marks for them because I mentioned Jesus and the Bible. So I, I, I'm sure we can explain that. But once you enter into this stage of Christ-centric consciousness, you actually begin to see yourself in the egocentric, in the ethnocentric, in the world-centric. But when you're in the world-centric you have a disdain for the egocentric and the ethnocentric. And when you're in the ethnocentric, you have a disdain for the egocentric. When you're in the egocentric, you fear ethnocentric. When you're in ethnocentric, you fear world-centric. But once you enter into this place of Christ-centric consciousness, pure awareness, unfiltered awareness, you can call it God awareness, you see yourself in all those stages and you don't see yourself as better than someone else, as a little higher on the stage of spiritual development. No, you actually see yourself in them. And, and that tears down the walls that are between people. So going into that, can you define Christ-centric? I love to define it. It's like, I, you know, I get so excited when I talk about this. Um, so think about Christ-centric, and I could use a different word, you know. The, the people talk about the Buddha nature and all of that, and I'm not here to, to uh, say that one religion over another religion, that's not my point. We can, have, we can have discussions about all of that, but that's not the point for this podcast. But when I talk about Christ-centric, as I said, you could be Buddha-centric or any other religion. You, you exchange it for whatever you believe. Um, and so my Christian friends will take offense with me saying that, but that's also an ethnocentric worldview. What I'm saying when I talk about Christ-centric, I'm talking about Christ-centric consciences is to be aware of Christ in me 
and to observe and experience Christ in everything and to identify with everything as Christ. Paul said, Christ is all and in all. And he says, when you, when you are seated, and this is kind of uh, metaphorical language that he uses, he says, when you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places, it's not talking about in heaven someplace right now, when he said, you are right now seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And he says, because of that, there is no Greek, there is no Jew, there is no, um, we could use the word black or white, Hispanic, no American, no Muslim, no Christian, no Buddhist, no Jew, uh, no gay, uh, no straight, whatever. But Christ is all. And, you know, he's saying this is a place of awareness. And this is what the mystic speaks of being conscious of oneness with the absolute, the infinite, or what we refer to as God. When one is aware of this union, the lines between what is in here and what is out there are blurred. So-called otherness diminishes to the point of dissolution. I wrote this in the book. One becomes aware of selfless love as the energy that holds all things together. And you see this in Jesus. This is the amazing thing. Jesus talked about this all the time. He said, I'm in the prisoner. I'm in the children. I'm in the naked. I'm in the immigrant. I'm in those people. What you do to them, you do unto me. I'm in the Father. The Father is in me. You are in me. I'm in you. I mean, so Jesus continually spoke of this, but to someone who is ethnocentric, they will reject it. So my Christian friends will reject this, even though it's in the Bible, because they cannot see it. And they fear it because egoically speaking, they're still looking for what makes me special, what makes me unique. We are God's special people. That is so eye-opening. It, it really is because you and growing up in a Christian um, uh, background, Christian um, church and all those types of things, you do see and hear those words, I am in you and you are in me and I am in this and you are in that. And, and, and as God says, and I never saw it that way until you just said this. It's interesting. Most of us, it's just an intellectual thought. And this is my point, that when you truly awaken, it's no longer an intellectual thought. It's not just a mental concept in your, in your head, a, a belief system. And that's what we talked about last week. The truth, beliefs can point you to the truth, but it's not the truth itself. The truth is that God's presence, God is within you. There's an eternal dimension within you, your spirit, consciousness. And, and I will be so bold to say that, it, that that consciousness is your God consciousness. Mm -hmm. And... Your mind gravitates toward egocentricity and ethnocentricity and world-centric views. But, and your heart the same way. But if you truly awaken to that dimension within you that is one with God, that permeates with love, now that love transforms your sense of self, your heart, your emotions. 
And that transforms the way you see the world, the way you interpret the world, and the way you perceive others. So there's some people who never see that. Are they walking blind and asleep all the time? I think people can have momentary glimpses of this, but they rejected fear within us. You see, you know this as well as I do, being raised in church. We have been taught never question what you believe, just accept it. Mm -hmm. Embedded into that statement is fear. So if you begin to question what you believe, you feel afraid, right? And therefore you don't dare to go there because you have too much to lose. Family, friendships, mm -hmm. everything else. Mm -hmm. So you never dare to, to go there. And, and that's the problem that most people have. They're afraid and therefore they're stuck. Now, some people, they go to university and, you know, they may have been raised in a Christian home. They go to university, hear something different, and then they leave their faith altogether. But most people have never seen that, oh, there is more. There's, there's an even greater stage, and that is we go from me, we, everybody to one. See, in everybody, there is still you over there, over you, and I leave you alone. If you leave me alone, I treat you the same. Everybody is the same. But when you come to one, you begin to see yourself in everyone. And that's where true love is, is born. That's where true love is manifest, not born, but where true love is manifested. So you say your true self, since your true self is Christ-centric, consciousness, not rooted in thoughts. The concept of true self is a challenge to define by rational thought. Can you elaborate on that? Now think about this. How can you... Define something that you cannot perceive with your five senses. How can you define something that is beyond thought? That you don't grasp with thought. And we talked about this last week. Love at its core. I mean, you couldn't really explain. If, if, if a robot, how do you tell a robot what love is? It's like you, you're just aware of it. You just know, you just know what it is when you felt it. And and, and it's coming together, it's this union. And so you cannot define it with words. You have, you have to experience it. You have to see it. And the only way you see it is when you awaken to your true self, that dimension within you that is one with God. And that is what I refer to as awakening to I am love. And so when we think about Jesus, the story of Jesus and, and all the things that we've heard, Jesus has become unfortunately, a story, a narrative by ethnocentric people who pit others against you and us versus them. We have monopoly on Jesus because we have accepted Jesus in this prayer and now we go to church and you're not like us. You may not even go to the same church as us, or we have these racial things, unconscious racist biases that we have because, and we even include Jesus in that. We make Jesus to be on our side. Jesus is blue-eyed, you know, not there's anything wrong with that. I have blue eyes myself, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, he's blonde and blue-eyed, but that's not reality. First of all, Jesus would not have been blue-eyed and, and blonde because he was raised in the Middle East, so that would not have been the case. He didn't speak English. He didn't speak King James English. Uh, he did none of those things. He spoke 
something that was more similar to Arabic and that had much more similarity with Arabic language. So most people will probably mistake it for, for an Arab, maybe a Muslim. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's how Jesus would have been seen today, probably. If he, if he had ever traveled through the airport, he might have been stopped and searched because he may have looked like a terrorist because you never know. I'm suggesting that is a possibility. So because, But we have this concept of Jesus that he is like us. It's offensive for a white person if you would suggest that Jesus is black, mm -hmm. right? Why is that offensive? Because we perceive Jesus to be like us. Reality is that when you actually read the Bible and you see Jesus, you see Jesus as, oh, he transcend, transcends all ethnic tribes, allegiances and he says and i'm 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 always stunned by this in the sermon on the mount he begins by speaking and he speaks to the people of decapolis to the people of in this whole region and it says that people that come from decapolis which were 10 cities they were multicultural cities that people came from around the world and lived in these cities and he spoke to all of them and he says you are the light of the world you are the light of the world. What was he saying? You are the light of consciousness. You are all the light of the world, not to the Jewish, not to the Christians. There were no Christians at the time, not to the Muslims. You are all the light of the world. Jesus was incredibly inclusive of everyone. He was awakened to the very essence of God within him. And he says, be my disciples, follow me. To be a disciple is to emulate. You also awaken. You also awaken to the very dimension of God within you. So you also say Christian spiritual text is an opposing story that says we are inherited, inherently blessed, connected with the source of life. Can you explain that? Yeah, so think about it this way. I think I'm trying to remember exactly what, what the quote was, but I think you summarized it pretty good there. Uh, what I'm saying is this, that most of us were raised to believe in original sin. Mm -hmm. That all of us are wicked, inherently wicked. We're evil. We need to be saved. We're not good. We're terrible people. We need to be saved. And Jesus came to save us because we were really, really wicked people. But that's the wrong story. In fact, that was not until year 1000 or so that someone came up with that idea. It was not never even taught in the early church. But someone came up with that idea. And then in Calvin then expanded on it. He was a lawyer and expanded on that, that idea that all of us are criminals and we're all horrible. But that's not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is that Christ is all and in all. The story of the Bible is that God breathed into the nostrils of man his own breath, his own consciousness, and we became living beings. The story of the Bible is that when God created man, he saw it was very good. So when God sees, and God is in all of us, and when we awaken to, to a consciousness that is based on God's consciousness within us, we see that everything is very good, Marcus, you are very good. 
So even if you commit crime, and even if you do something terrible, I recognize it's the egoic mind that has blinded you to who you are. But at the very core, at the very core, God is in you. You are not aware of it. You're not awake to it. But can you imagine how that will change how we deal with one another if we actually saw that? If you saw, if, if I looked at someone who had done me wrong, and rather than thinking that they are horrible, they are terrible, if I actually began to say, oh, yeah, what they did was terrible. But as Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. In other words, they don't know who they are. He could have said, for they do not know who they are. Can you imagine how, when we awaken to this Christ-centric consciousness, how we will begin to interact with one another differently? You said we must wake up to a divine reality beyond our intellect and in our spirit, the true essence of our being. Basically, when you find Christ-centric consciousness, you're able to have no fouls, no falls, no flaws. You're able to just live in a space of peace. Just remember the layers you have to go through. So you have a mind. Now your mind labels everything. The mind is made up of knowledge, is made up of content. So you have all these, you have a name, it's a label. It's a form of judgment. You have a race, it's a form of judgment. You may be of a certain, uh, you're male or female. That's, that's a form of judgment too. All of those are forms of judgment. Those are based on content in your mind of who you are. And so there's long-term memory and there is short-term memory and all of it is kind of, it, it's your mind. And so then you also have your heart, which is your seed of your being. It's your true essence. And I talk about that later on as as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. What does that mean? Your feelings, your emotions are your heart. And the feelings and emotions that we talked about last time is rooted in fear. And those feelings then interpret how you respond to reality. But what if you can unclog and open up your heart to your spirit? So in a way, the whole story of Jesus is pretty incredible because it says Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted. So what did he come to do? He came to remove, in a way you could say, that his message and what he demonstrated and the cross demonstrate a death for all of us. It says in one place, you were crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live in the word for I here is ego. The ego that has been planted in your heart, that has now defined who you are, that says that you are not, not enough. Once you can remove the guilt, the shame, the fear from your heart and let that die, your heart is now opened to the divine reality that you're one with God. And now that transforms the way you see yourself. And that transforms your thoughts that you have. And that transforms how you see others. And you begin to see yourself in them because your center of gravity is no longer your thoughts. Your center of gravity is no longer your heart and your emotions. Your center of gravity is your spirit. And that spirit is one with all things. And it's healing the brokenhearted. And that's what 
the brokenhearted was. Exactly. Fear and sh shame and guilt has closed our hearts. When we open up, when we die to the ego, then there is resurrection. And that resurrection life is life of pure consciousness, pure love, pure awareness, pure knowledge of God, not just within you, but within all things. And that's how you concluded with that eagle, is where the environmentalists took that eagle up. Started off oh, yeah. right up to the roof top, and he just swooped back down because he still saw the chickens on the ground. And he still saw the chickens down there and he swooped down and just go start plucking and clucking like the chicken again. He identified then, with the chicken still. Still. The eagle identified himself as a chicken. And then he took him a little bit higher from the rooftop to a, a tree. And he still could see the chickens on the ground and still could identify with the chicken. So he swooped right back down and became clucking and picking like the chickens again. But the last time he took him to the high mountaintop, the very, very top where he couldn't see the same people that he used to hang out with, or he couldn't see the same situations he used to be in. Same he couldn't see <laughs> the same chickens that are always still there and they're still there, but couldn't see them anymore because he had a new awareness of consciousness and threw him up in the air and all he saw was a sun. And he gazed toward the sun and, we, and, and as he gazed toward the sun, he lifted his wings and he soared effortlessly into the sky because the eagle is not a chicken. It's an eagle. It's meant to fly. And the point that I'm making for you and for me and for all of us, we are not these selfish humans that are no good for nothing, that are sinners and lost and everything else at the very core. Our very true essence is that we're one with God. And when we awaken to that reality, we will soar far above all chicken living or far above all that, what do I call that, picking away and struggling and emotional turmoil and disaster and, and fear and shame and guilt and just live in the wonderful embrace of divine love. So you say at the last, so my friend, wake up to who you are. You're not the sum of your biology, the collection of your thoughts or a chicken in the farmer's yard. You are a soaring majestic spirit. One with the essence of the same energy that permeates the universe love. Yeah. <laughs> can't say it any better. Can't say it any better. Well, I definitely can't say it any better. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dad, this was a, a wonderful, wonderful chapter and ending conclusion to part one of your book, Awakening to I Am Love. And I know part two is coming up next the false self. Um, and I'm really um, excited to move on to the part two and chapter four, the formation of the ego. Well, thank you very much, David. I, I'm, I'm 
learning a lot. And I encourage all of the listeners out there to pick up the book, Awakening to I Am Loved by David Youngren and follow along. Um, go back through the podcasts and the chapters that you may not have had the book with and highlight the things that really mean something to you and go back and study them and, and see how they reflect in your life because I can guarantee you it does uh, open your eyes and create change for the better. Thanks for listening to today's podcast of Path of Love with David Youngren. This podcast is produced by the Path of Love Center thanks to the generosity of our donors. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, and sharing it with a friend. Together, we can grow an inclusive community around the transformational work of love. To learn more about Path of Love and get daily wisdom seeds sent to your email inbox, visit pathoflovecenter.com. You can also download David Youngren's guided audio meditation, Healing Stillness, for free at our website. From all of us at Path of Love, may love, joy, and peace be with you always.